so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, filling in for Tim Alders once again. Glad that you're here. Glad you're hanging tight to the message of liberty. I don't know, maybe more people are, but sometimes I get the sense that we are, like, terribly outnumbered. Do you feel that way sometimes, too? I know it can feel overwhelming. Uh, I Actually, I was talking with a neighbor the other day, and, uh, you know, just it just came up in ca- casual conversation that, uh, you know, that I, I sometimes uh, do radio shows, podcasts, and things like that. And he says, you know, I've been listening to you for a little bit. And he says, I love what you have to say, but I've had to take a break. Sometimes it just gets overwhelming. And I think to myself, I know how he feels. <laughs> I, I feel the same way, too. And it's not that it's not that there were some kind of masochist out there were looking for things. Oh, yeah, that's going wrong, too. Oh, look how bad everything is. Really, I, I'm not looking for the worst in things. And at the same time, you can't pay attention to current events and not come away with a sense that, whoa, <laughs> we are we're seriously off the rails here in a lot of different areas. So just know anything that uh, that you hear that uh, that is appealing to your fear, like if it's deliberately being done for the sake of this is to make you afraid. Think twice about putting your arms around something like that. And I only say this because oftentimes when, when someone's trying to scare us, they're trying to skip past the turnstile in our brain, our subconscious, and hack your mind. Fear is a very effective shortcut for doing that. Instead of persuading you, hey, this is kind of a grave situation, maybe you should take this seriously, you know, it's right to, boom, be afraid. And, and here's the tough thing about that. I have to admit, I'm guilty of it sometimes. I'm ashamed to be guilty of it, but there it is. For the most part, I just want to promote, be aware of what's going on. Understand what you stand for, for that matter. You think about what it's like to to love liberty, to really be someone who, you know, is associated with liberty. Now, for some people, that's going to be a negative, you know, associate. Oh, yeah, he's the guy who's always going on about liberty. But... People who know you by your principles, you know, if you're going to be known by a principle, that's a pretty good one to be known by. But that's a product of knowing where you are, what you stand for, and especially what you stand for more so than just what you're against. At least I would hope you'd consider that. Now, having said that, I'm always looking for a fresh take on things. I want to better understand what's going on around us. And I love it when I find someone who can speak to the truth of what's happening without appealing to my fear or without appealing to my sense of anger or hatred. And they can do it intelligibly and in a way that tells me, okay, they've got some clarity regarding this situation. 
I know I spend a lot of time talking about how right now we are we're losing our liberties badly under a type of medical techno tyranny that's being imposed on us because you know there's there's an illness out there's a virus out there we can't see it and we can't hear it and we can't touch it but it's there we're assured and we have to do these extraordinary things we're going to talk in a few minutes about what australia has done because if you want to see how how far this extreme can be taken that's a pretty good example but to me here's the worst part of it all the measures that are being done, whether it's the ubiquitous signs, masks required, masks suggested, or, you know, just the outright dictates. You will send your child to school wearing a mask. For this flight, you will wear the mask. If you want to ride on this bus, if you want to ride on this train. There's a lot of that going on. And behind it all is this, hey, this is for your own good. Well, I came across an article that really lays bare what is actually taking place there? And it's on a website called offguardian.org. It's actually off-guardian.org. I only mention this because I'm always looking for good information, or at least somebody who has a solid take on what's happening. And I have read several of the writers there. They have quite a stable of, of contributors. But I've been very impressed with the quality of their writing and their ability to get a message across without either pandering or just flat-out throwing red meat to me. That's impressive. This is from a writer by the name of T.E. Cruz. It's all for your own good. Listen to this take. T.E. Cruz says, One of the most annoying aspects of the current measures supposedly created against the pandemic that we've been subjected to for almost two years now is the insistence that everything is done for your own good. As if governments and big companies were strict but caring parents and we were just unruly or disobedient children who don't really know what they need. It brings to mind uh, C.S. Lewis's warning about the most oppressive of tyrannies. Quote, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims. End quote. Now, see, now, uh, I'm sorry, T.E. Cruz says, you know, I can't tell for sure if the, vac- if the vaccines, the lockdowns, the travel restrictions and the masks work or not. He says, my feeling is that they don't, or at least not in the way that we're being told, but that's not the issue. The question is, why are we treated like stupid children who simply cannot choose, but have to take a jab, then get green passes to travel or work or enter any establishment? He says, apparently governments and big corporations worldwide are worried about our health. But are they really? He says, like monomaniacs, they seem to be worried exclusively about COVID. Not about the incredible amount of mental health issues and the alarming increase of teen suicides during the various lockdowns. Not about people like my elderly neighbors who could not see their family who live in another country for over two years and are suffering with solitude. Not for the people who, afraid of contracting COVID, didn't go to the hospital to treat other conditions and died. Not for the people who died or got sick because side effects of the of side effects of the vaccines. No, it's just COVID. And even that doesn't seem to be their main worry. As long as they get their vaccine passports and their tracking apps and their cashless society, they really don't care if you get the disease or not. When did this wave of fake concern start? Now, he says, OK, buddy, uh, you know, governments rather were probably always in the business of being annoying, annoying busybodies. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. That was a scary sentence since who knows how long. 
But companies for decades were mostly concerned with selling their products, not lecturing us. However, at the peak of BLM riots, he says, I received dozens of emails from big companies assuring me that, to them, black lives mattered. In Pride Month, those same companies assured me that they were fighting for transgender rights to use whichever bathroom they wanted. And T.E. Cruz says, I never asked nor cared about what their position was on those issues, just that they make a good product that I can use. Now these same companies send me emails about masks and vaccination and passes because, see, they're worried about my health. Now he says, unfortunately, it's not just governments and big companies. Almost every institution in the culture and the arts is kowtowing, either by government decrees or to keep being funded, I don't know, to this literal new world order. For instance, the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra now has very strict regulations for entry. They tell us that they want to create an environment in which we may all confidently discover what it means to be together again. Uh-huh. So in the name of togetherness, they're banning all people who are not vaccinated, including all children under 12 years of age who cannot, alas, be legally vaccinated yet. Not even people with a negative COVID test will be allowed entry to the concerts, only the vaxxed ones with their proper certificates. Still, even they will have to endure masks for the whole duration of the spectacle. And he says it's not clear if the musicians also have to wear masks. I suppose at least the flute players will be exempted. And yet, despite all those draconian rules, who really seem to take all the fun out of the process, and in this case, it might really be better to just stay home and watch a video streaming online, these protocols do not offer offer absolute protection against contracting COVID-19. That's the disclaimer. And the spectators must voluntarily assume all risks relative to exposure to COVID-19. So we're going to segregate you. We're going to strictly control who can and who cannot be here. But at the same time, this is no guarantee you're not going to get COVID. You voluntarily assume all risks related to it. T.E. Cruz says, note also that those showing any possible symptoms might not be allowed entry, vaccine or not. He says, I wonder if anybody who coughs during one of the breaks will be forcefully ejected. This is just one example among many of the ludicrous and merciless new normals that we're subject to in the name of our health. But remember, it's for your own good. I happen to agree with his conclusion here. That's the thing that makes it so unpalatable. It's all for your own good. We're just doing this because, you know, you matter to us. (laughs) I don't believe that for a second. I don't believe the crocodile tears. All I believe is that somebody is very intent that we obey and we do not question. And they're getting kind of kind of violent about it, frankly. So this brings me to another commentary, and this is one that uh, a friend sent to me. Very interesting question. Do national COVID mandates fulfill the public good? Now, this is authored by Scott Mason. I assume he's writing from Canada because he references Canada and some of the different concerns in some of the provinces there. But I think he's focusing on the right thing because this is not just a matter of, well, you know, if uh, if only Trump was in charge, why we'd have this thing, you know, in the bag. Sorry, but there's a lot of Republicans out there. I'm not saying Trump is necessarily the one, but there are plenty of Republicans out there who clearly love Republican-flavored statism. And that's really where our problem lies, statism. Do you know the creed of statism? 
Let me share this with you. This is something worth filing away for anytime someone proposes some new, you know, policy be instituted, which is always, you know, at the force with the backing of force, you know, at the end of a gun. The creed of statism is this. Anything that is not under the direct control of the state is, by definition, out of control. That's how statists think. And so it was statist thinking applied to COVID. Well, if it's out of the control of the state, then we've got to, you know, get it under control of the state. And again, in the next segment, we're going to talk a little bit about what Australia has done, the lengths that they have gone to, to get things under control. Now, the virus isn't under control, not by a long shot, but the people, oh yeah, they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty under control for now. But who wouldn't be? Rubber bullets, tear gas, boot on your neck, arrested if you so much as venture outside your house. They're about as controlled as you know people are going to get. At least it's not as, as ba- not as bad as in London, where I just saw a video of police enforcing you know mandates there, sicking attack dogs on protesters. Oh yeah, there's some crazy stuff happening. But back to the question. Do national COVID mandates fulfill the public good? There's a deeper question that has to be asked, and I like that uh, Scott Mason asks it. He says, a crisis has now darkened Western democracies just as surely as long-benighted dictatorships. Wherein does it lie? In the disdain with which the proud technocrats dismiss conscience. Conscience is no quantifiable thing. It has no weight or measure. It can't be listed among a nation's assets. Science can't prove it exists. Yet conscience is no mere trifle. Conscience distinguishes humanity from the brutes of creation. It's the little spark of celestial fire that motivated the obedience of our nation's greatest heroes in their darkest hour. It is the voice of God in the soul. And Scott Mason says over the past 18 months, our fundamental freedoms have, been, have all been assaulted by a virus. The public incursions against freedom have been protested. But the small private matter of conscience has received scant attention. Why? Well, because it's the casualty of friendly fire by friends who never acknowledged it. And he gives some examples here. Conscience was caught in the politicians' war on COVID-19 and its variants. They confessed their faith in science to defeat it. Progress demanded it. Computer models predicted the threat to the control of the system of public health to be so terrible that to defend their technopoly, as coined by Neil Postman in his book of the same name, politicians seized extraordinary emergency powers to aid science in its certain victory. He says this unwavering faith in science was completely irrational, if not unscientific. Science itself tells us that viruses are not living organisms. They cannot be killed. And they also mutate. All the gains from rushing the slow safety protocols of science to contain last year's virus were swiftly lost in the subsequent variants. Just as an aside here to to bear that out, I don't know if you were aware of this, but Israel, which boasts one of the most vaccinated populations in in, in all the countries of the of the earth, still has out-of-control spread of the Delta variant. Like an insane number of cases. And now they're talking about how, well, we're going to have to uh, have a booster of some sort to address this new variant. 
And people who've had both of the uh, original vaccinations, those who would be considered fully vaccinated, if they don't get the booster sometime within the next five months, will be considered unvaccinated. Isn't that interesting how that works? I mean, you could conceivably see this become uh, a thing where you have to be vaccinated every five or six months by mandate. Yeah, I'm I'm sure I'm not the only person that kind of gives a moment of, whoa, I don't know if I don't know if I want to go there. In fact, I'm pretty sure I don't. And yet the unflagging determination to win the war continues, says Scott Mason. The illogic of the position grows. And that's because it never was a fight about science. It was a fight to defend the pride of the idol of technocracy and extend its dominance. That means more control for the technocrats. So the Pfizer vaccine, now fully approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, is a marvel of speed and deployment. But its success rate of 39% against the dominant Delta variant would never have got it to trial just a year ago. The The FDA's August 23rd approval seems more of a participation trophy for speed and application than for actual success. But he says, my concern is not to observe this evident absurdity. It's to note the moral consequence of fighting an extended, vain war against an immortal and invisible enemy with no defined exit strategy. He says, for now, it's abundantly clear. Approving a failed vaccine while mandating passports allows for a permanent group of second-class citizens, even after a state of emergency has ended. And it normalizes mandatory vaccinations for everyone, even when they are not useful. He says, in September, Quebec and British Columbia will require vaccination passports for non-essential activities. And some other provinces are considering following suit. While the federal government is planning to mandate vaccinations for commercial, air, train, and uh, cruise ship passengers, as well as for all federal employees. He says we'd be naive to think it will stop there. So why does this matter? Okay, well, here's where he brings it home. It matters because consciences are being crushed in the mission creep. Why do I cite conscience as a problem? Well, Scott Mason says when politicians waived the legal liability of the vaccine manufacturers, they also demanded the medical community set aside its ethics, first through a sustained campaign of pressure to take the shot, and now through mandates. Now, if the campaign of pressure defied the bedrock ethical principle of informed consent established in the Nuremberg Code, then the mob's call for mandates on doctors and patients to defend our technocracy is in defiance of our very essence as human beings. Martin Luther once noted that to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. And the great civil rights activist Martin Luther King Jr. echoed his words. In his autobiography, he writes, On some positions, cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expedience asks the question, is it politic? And vanity comes along and asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of convenience, but where he stands in moments of challenge, moments of great crisis and controversy. End quote. So Scott Mason is saying the worth of the individual conscience is the great legacy of the West. And its blessings have spread with the Nuremberg Code and in political deference of conscience. But he says we are on the eve of its eclipse. 
That's why we have to take this stuff seriously. That's why we can't just, well, you know, this makes some people uncomfortable, so we better not talk about it. This is why we need to talk about it. Scott Mason says, we are reaching the, or we are rejecting rather, the lesson of history. Individuals ignore their conscience at the peril of their own souls. And when technocratic science is given the lead over the conscience of the nation, so much greater is the ruin. This can, however, be avoided. English playwright George Bernard Shaw described a Native American elder's account of his own struggles with conscience. Inside of me, there are two dogs. One of the dogs is mean and evil. The other dog is good. The mean dog fights the good dog all the time. When asked which dog wins, he reflected for a moment and replied, the one I feed the most. Scott Mason says, the moral goodness of the freedom of association, the freedom of peaceful assembly, the freedom of thought and expression, and the freedom of conscience and religion are enshrined as fundamental rights in Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But he says they've been set aside these last 18 months under the auspices of an emergency. The good dog has been deprived of his food. And so he says, the question I would ask Canadians and our politicians is what sort of nation is being preserved when fundamental civil liberties have been cast aside and the inviolability of conscience has been despoiled by, or rather as a medical necessity, a casualty of war? What sort of country will we return to and what will our children inherit when the freedoms our charter calls fundamental give way to appeals to what is safe or politic or popular rather than what is right? It is indeed a time of crisis. That's pretty powerful stuff. And I want to just add a couple of thoughts to this regarding conscience. Because from the beginning, that's, uh, this is one of the things that I have felt is uh, a strong sense of, hey, this mask is not going to fit over my conscience. Now, I don't mean that to me because I'm such a good person that my conscience just can't bear the thought of a mask. Trust me, if there was an easier way, if it was just as simple as, you know, just put on the mask and go along and pff, it'll all be good, I would love to do that. But I can't ignore the fact that my conscience from the very beginning has been saying, this is not just about trying to protect people from the spread of, an, of a virus. My conscience has told me this is a test to see how readily people will obey when someone in authority says, do this. Now wear two masks. Now wear masks and goggles and stand at least 12 feet away from other people. Come on, you know there are people who would do it in a heartbeat. If they told us, you know, the virus can only survive above three feet above floor level, they would be on their hands and knees crawling or walking like a bear to get where they're going. So rather than blend in with the crowd, rather than, you know, try to just go along to get along, I know the, uh, there have been a lot of other people like me who felt that call of conscience that says someone has to be willing to break the illusion of consensus. And that doesn't mean you have to turn every, you know, meeting you go to. For instance, I don't march into church like, all right, everybody look at my maskless face and know this is a political statement. In fact, if anything, my conscience is saying you need to show people lovingly and humbly that not everyone is going to go along with this. That this is about control more so than about actual protection. And that can be hard to do. And, as, and if you've done this, you already know. You will get side glances. You will get called out. Sometimes you'll be castigated. Some people have been attacked. Why would you go to that trouble? 
just because your conscience is, is gnawing at you? Well, for what it's worth, here's my opinion. The answer is because your conscience should be a constant companion in your life. If you've never read the great essay, Conscience on the Battlefield by Leonard E. Reed, it's a good essay. And it was written a while back, but it, it's wisdom, it's, its words hold up very well. A dying soldier comes face to face with his conscience at the end of his life as he lays dying on the battlefield. And he learns that his companion all through his life was his conscience. He just had grown able to ignore it. He'd found ways that he could mute it. But the only thing that would accompany him into eternity was his conscience. And if that's true, then I would think we would want to be at peace with that conscience, wouldn't you? I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network. Hail, my fellow Americans. How did you feel watching footage on the news of domestic terrorists looting our stores and burning our cities down? Uh, You were probably disgusted and angry as much as I was. It's disturbing what's going on. Well, you'd be shocked to know that your shopping habits are supporting these extremists. Companies like Amazon, Nike, Disney, FedEx, it's an endless list. And they've been supporting these radical groups. Let's stop supporting companies that fund these extremist groups. We can all do our part. Visit shoptotheright.com and you'll find businesses in a nationwide database and companies that are aligned with our American values. Visit shoptotheright.com and let's all make a difference. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Today, America stands at the crossroads of history. Our actions will determine the fate of our nation. Well, that journey starts here and starts now. We invite you to join us in making the ultimate difference. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters. Turn notifications on and stay in the know. You'll find all that back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Hey, welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty here on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Brian Hyde filling in for Tim Alders. So, yeah, we covered conscience pretty well, I think, in the last segment. So we're going to talk a little bit about what has been happening 
Where are governments going off the rails? And, and Australia is a good place to look. Do you want to see a nation that was actually willing to create a fully operational police state to stop COVID-19? Look at what's happening right now in Australia and in New Zealand. And the crazy thing about it is the data shows it's not working. It's not keeping things from, it's not keeping the illness from progressing. All it's doing is just subjecting people to incredibly harsh lockdown procedures and criminalizing virtually everything. Everything that's not under the control of the government is deemed to be out of control and therefore illegal. This is an article from John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education. And he's speaking of about a week ago when uh, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, Ardern rather, announced that the government would be extending its lockdown following an outbreak of the Delta variant. Now, Ardern at a news conference in the capital, Wellington, said, We don't yet believe we have reached the peak of this outbreak, or necessarily the edge of it. Meanwhile, in nearby Australia, residents are entering the ninth week of a lockdown that had initially been scheduled for two weeks. In many of the hardest-hit parts of the city, NBC reports military personnel roam the streets and authorities issue fines of up to $3,700 to individuals breaking lockdown orders. Now, the policy has resulted in violent clashes between the police and lockdown protesters, but public health officials have defended the policy, which is expected to last at least through September. What this is about is buying us time, said Kerry Chant, the chief health officer in New South Wales. Now, this is lockdown deja vu, says John Miltimore. He says the decision by by New Zealand and Australia to lock down and stay in lockdown as the virus spreads fits a familiar pattern. In 2020, numerous governments around the world went into lockdown to attempt to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. In the United States, public health officials created a 15 days to slow the spread campaign, which quickly evolved in many places into indefinite closures of all economic sectors deemed non-essential. And of course, the results of the lockdowns were catastrophic. Millions of job losses, millions of businesses destroyed, surging drug overdoses, increased youth suicide and depression, and a massive decrease in cancer screenings among them. Globally, as many as 150 million people are expected to slip into extreme poverty, according to the World Bank. Now, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, a professor at Stanford University Medical School, recently called the lockdowns the biggest public health mistake we've ever made, saying the harm to people is catastrophic. John Miltimore says the harms would be bad enough, but an abundance of evidence also suggests the lockdowns were ineffective at containing the virus. Nearly three dozen academic studies have been published suggesting lockdowns do little to slow the spread of the virus. Now, I know some people, how could that be? You know, it's, <clears throat> any, any little thing helps. No, the virus pretty much does what it's going to do, as viruses have done for many, many thousands of years. It doesn't care what some politician puts on a piece of paper. In fact, John Miltimore points out, following the outbreak last year, modelers warned Sweden would incur at least 96,000 deaths by July 1st of 2020 without mitigation, meaning without harsh lockdown measures. Do you know to date, more than a year later, fewer than 15,000 Swedes have died with coronavirus. And Sweden actually saw a lower death spike than most of Europe. Moreover, neighbors such as Norway and Finland, who had policies similar to Sweden, actually somewhat more liberal than Sweden, meaning they weren't locked down as hard as Sweden, 
had among the lowest COVID mortality rates in Europe. Dr. Bhattacharya told Newsweek earlier this year, lockdowns have not served to control the pandemic in places where they've been most vigorously enforced. Now, unfortunately, the current lockdowns in Australia and New Zealand are proving no more effective at slowing their virus than the lockdowns of 2020, despite the hardline approach of their governments. The three-day moving average for cases is nearly 1,000 in Australia, nearly double its peak in 2020. New Zealand, meanwhile, cases there have surged to more than 60 per day, despite the fact that New Zealand went into lockdown after learning of a single case of COVID. So I, you know, how do you, how do you answer that? One single case, we better lock it down. How many cases per day now? Oh, about 60. How's that working? I mean, you've literally created a police state to enforce the lockdown, and it's not working any better than they did last year. What's it called when you keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results? Is that not the definition of insanity or one of the definitions? John Miltimore says one reason lockdowns struggle to contain the virus is that research shows stay-at-home orders may actually be counterproductive. University of Chicago economist Casey B. Mulligan noted in a National Bureau of Economic Research paper published back in April, quote, Microevidence contradicts the public health ideal in which households would be places of solitary confinement and zero transmission. He says instead, the evidence suggests that households show the highest transmission rates and that households are high-risk settings for the transmission of COVID-19. Now, economists at the Rand Corporation and University of Southern California reached a similar conclusion regarding the ineffectiveness of shelter-in-place orders months later. The authors of their report said, We failed to find that shelter-in-place policies saved lives. We failed to find that counties, or countries rather, or U.S. states that implemented SIP policies earlier, and in which SIP policies had longer to operate, had lower excess deaths than those countries or U.S. states that were slower to implement shelter-in-place policies. Now, sadly, governments are compounding the tragedy of the pandemic with lockdown policies. Citizens aren't forced just to deal with a deadly pandemic. They're also forced to contend with police states that are growing increasingly aggressive and brutal. Let me play a little bit of a newscast for you here. I'm just looking to see how many commercial breaks this has in it. This is the Queensland government building a camp. What kind of a camp? Well, I'm just going to leave it at a camp. But listen to what officials have to say about this. Good evening. With our hotels at capacity and our borders under the sustained threat of Delta, tonight the Premier is taking matters into her own hands. Construction already beginning on a dedicated regional quarantine facility without the support of the federal government. They may be in this together, but they're doing it alone. It's time for the politics to end. The facility will be built. It will be a purpose-built facility. Paid for by Toowoomba's Wagner family and run by the state government. This could have been built by now. I mean, we've got to get on with this. It is a race. For months, the Premier has been at loggerheads with the Prime Minister over the facility, the federal government insisting it doesn't meet the COVID guidelines. Does the Prime Minister know about this announcement this morning? Quite sure he does now. She's been at liberty to do that for months. We've made it very clear that that facility did not seek 
meet the national guidelines. Of most concern, the strain on Toowoomba Hospital. An influx of COVID patients would cause it to burst at the seams. We will transport them to the uh, COVID-equipped hospitals in uh, Brisbane. The federal government has already agreed to fund a similar facility in Pinkenbar. Two are definitely better than one. Today's announcement made on the day the state recorded no new community cases and 24 hours after the Premier declared Queensland quarantine was full, stating stretched resources. Can I ask how that alleviates the stress on police and nursing? Are we going to have to see a cap here in Queensland further down the track? Uh, my understanding is that there's less police and nursing that are actually needed when you have a purpose-built facility. The 1,000-bed facility, based on the Howard Springs model, will be up and running by the end of the year. The hope is to have at least 500 in by Christmas. It will cater for all, with single, double and family rooms. How they will arrive is still up in the air. The federal government would need to approve international flights landing at the adjacent Wellcamp Airport. Otherwise, people will be bussed in from Brisbane. Questions were put Did you catch the name of that? Wellcamp. Oh, my word. It just gets more Orwellian the more you start to peel back the layers here. But anyway... So the Queensland government is building a camp, and it's a private public venture. So a family, a very wealthy family, apparently provided the funds. But uh, this camp, and what else can we call it? This is a quarantine camp. It is an involuntary containment facility, meaning the people who are there are not there because I wasn't feeling well. I thought I'd check into the COVID camp until I felt a little bit better. It's not fat camp, right? They didn't come to lose some weight. They are being sent there with or without their permission, because they are suspected to have COVID. And their movement is restricted. It is a prison camp, even if it does accommodate singles, doubles, or families. Right this way, kids. You're going to be in jail with mom and dad. Now, look, if, if even if people were dropping dead, like if every third person was like dying of COVID, that would be a tragic thing. That would be horrific to see, and it would scare people it still would not make something like this justifiable. And that whole private partner, that private and public sector partnership, you know, for all the people out there dressed in black, chanting and screaming and wanting to pick fights for, you know, the fascists that they're fighting. Hey, kids, that's what fascism looks like. That's It's a partnership between the private sector and the state in which the private sector does things that the state technically isn't allowed to do because of limitations on its power. But because it's kind of a symbiotic relationship that benefits both of them, well, you know, the the private businesses step in there and they get it done. Now, they may not be building camps here in America, but you've seen very well what they are doing. Delta Airlines fining its workers an extra $200 a month. It's a health surcharge because you're not vaccinated. You know, call it what you want. But unless they're actively making claims and, you know, driving up your premiums, that's just uh, that's a load of garbage. That's just fantasy about what might happen. It's not about what actually is happening. Companies are pushing so hard to implement all of these things that government wants done, but uh, doesn't really have the authority to tell us to do. I was just hearing about today. Oh, who was it? I'm sorry, the name escapes me. Um, it was some noticeable person who's spoken out, apparently has uh, angered the powers that be, and uh, the the banking system now is shutting all of his accounts. Oh, it was uh, General... uh, uh, Almost had it. General Flynn. 
The guy who got raked over the coals was wrongly convicted of, of wrongdoing. Yeah. General Flynn, who somehow in a kangaroo trial came out on the losing end, but now apparently some, some of the major banks are shutting down his accounts. Well, you can't even, your money's no good here. I mean, how could anybody deny what is taking place right in front of our eyes? And this is not just, you know, what we were, we're highlighting right now is taking place in Australia and New Zealand. And that's pretty crazy in and of itself. It's just amazing to see first world nations going that route and doing so with this moral assurance like, oh, no, we're doing the right thing. This is this is exactly what we have to do. But it's a global effort. You want to see something really crazy? You should check out the new video that was released, I believe, back in July by the World Economic um, Forum. Yeah, the same ones who said you'll own nothing and like it. The ones who've talked about the Great Reset. Well, they have another film out there about uh, this is what life could be like five years from now. And I got to tell you, their vision of what life would be like, masks are still very much a part of everyday life. Sand, hand, hand sanitizer, rather, very much a part of everyday life. People pretty much stay home. They don't travel more than 15 minutes walking distance from their home. Everything is done virtually. Everything is done on the cloud. Your kids learn by looking at screens. Talk about keeping people under control. All right, back to John Miltimore's article here. He points out where in Australia, rescue dogs recently were shot dead in order to prevent charity workers from picking them up. Why? Well, because if they were to pick them up, that would require tr- require travel. And the state's also using uh, numerous health hotels to involuntarily confine COVID-positive patients or citizens while multiple quarantine facilities are being constructed, including that facility in Queensland that will house up to 1,000 people involuntarily. Australians who have declined to submit themselves to state confinement find themselves on the run. Maybe it won't surprise you to know that their police are allegedly monitoring fitness trackers. Yeah, your Fitbit, your Apple Watch. Police are monitoring these things to make sure that individuals are not traveling beyond the boundaries established by the state. Sydney uh, Channel 9 News reported it's getting harder and harder to hide if you're doing the wrong thing. And there's a video linked in the article that shows uh, police in Australia removing a man suspected of having COVID from his home for an indefinite stay at a COVID hotel. Then they show some videos of the uh, anti-lockdown protests in Australia. Well, I'm sure that the authorities understood, well, people aren't happy about this, but they treated it with kindness and compassion, right? Uh, Guess again. (laughs) Guess again. No, what they did was they sprayed them with uh, pepper spray and rubber bullets and uh, beat people because they're resisting these measures. They've met violent suppression from the police. One of the videos linked in the story shows a child crying in agony after being hit in the face with pepper spray by police during a freedom rally. I can't see, the boy cries as rally attendees try to wash the chemicals from his eyes with water. Now, the images are terrifying, and many people are beginning to awaken to the moral horror that is engulfing the land down under. Author Jordan B. Peterson tweeted on Thursday, Australians, and perhaps all in the West, are you being asked to choose between the dangers of a police state versus the dangers of COVID? He says, I would certainly prefer the relatively low risk of the latter to the increasingly unpleasant certainty of the former. 
Needless to say, these results are not what Australian lawmakers intended when they went into lockdown. They no doubt had hoped to contain or at least slow the spread of the virus, but that's not what's happening. Their police state, they would contend, was designed to keep people safe, not to create tyranny. But that's exactly what it's doing. And this potential for tyranny is pregnant in lockdowns everywhere. There's a quote here from U.S. President Harry Truman, who once observed, once a government is committed to the principle of silencing the voice of opposition, it has only one way to go. And that is down the path of increasingly repressive measures until it becomes a source of terror to all its citizens and creates a country where everyone lives in fear. So terror is what Australia's government has become. And John Miltimore says, let's pray that New Zealand and indeed the rest of the world finally recognize the true face of lockdowns. Now, I, I can understand if some people have, you know, kind of an aversion to this. Well, I think you guys are you're you're arguing a slippery slope. And it's possible. Maybe this is just a slippery slope argument. But what you see happening in Australia is pretty strong evidence that it, the slope is not only slippery, but it's uh, steep and things are going downhill very quickly. It's not hard to see other first world countries, likewise, jumping on this and trying to uh, to make this you know an issue or make this a reality where they are. And here's the kicker. I want to segue into something that hopefully will um, put a little bit of courage and, and backbone, you know, into your thinking about this. None of this can take place without our consent. Saw a great article from Dr. Joseph Mercola. Will you love your serv- servitude? And he references both Aldous Huxley and uh, George Orwell, who are becoming two of the most relevant authors of the last 100 years. Quickly, Aldous Huxley, an English writer and philosopher, wrote nearly 50 books, the most famous being Brave New World, a dystopian science fiction novel published in 1932. Now, the world in the novel is a futuristic one based on science and technology. Emotions and the sense of individuality are eliminated starting in childhood via the use of conditioning. Now, the book is a work of fiction, but concepts on which it is based, including the power to condition humans to accept an abnormal state of life, are not. And there's a video linked within the article. This is from After School, Love Your Servitude, by Aldous Huxley and George Orwell. You can hear a 1962 interview with Huxley in this video in which he speaks about the use of persuasion and conditioning to gain ultimate control and power over society. So keep in mind, in 1962, he was saying, if you're going to control a population for any length of time, you must have some measure of consent. And his words ring eerily true in 2021. Joseph Marcola says, Frederick Douglass once said, when a slave becomes a happy slave... He has effectively relinquished all that makes him human. How does a human get to the point of loving their servitude or consenting to live in and even enjoy a state of affairs that they should not? Well, often it's through techniques of terrorism. And while the word implies violence, some of the most profound and dangerous techniques combine methods of terror with methods of acceptance, Huxley said. By bringing in elements of persuasion, it's possible for a controlling oligarchy to get people to love their servitude. In 1957, William Sargent published Battle for the Mind, which delves into the techniques used by evangelists, psychiatrists, and politicians to change beliefs and behavior. 
Religious leaders talk about or produce conversions rather by heightening psychological stress, talking about hell, and then releasing this stress by offering a promise of heaven. Prisoners of war can be similarly brainwashed and pressured into making admissions of guilt. Pavlov's dog study is one of the most well-known displays of the power of conditioning. His dogs salivated not only in response to food, but in response to any object or event that they learned to associate with food. And the findings also apply to humans, who can be conditioned to associate abstract images with food, as shown by researchers with the Welcome Department of Neuroimaging Science at University of College London. When shown pictures of the food-associated images, their reaction times increased and areas of their brains involved in motivation and emotional processes were activated. After Pavlov's demonstration of classical conditioning, the profound observations sunk into the creature, Huxley said, and Pavlovian methods were recognized as tools that could be applied with extraordinary efficiency, creating armies of totally devoted people. But ultimate power involves voluntary acceptance. And Dr. Mercola says non-terroristic methods are also essential in gaining ultimate control as some measure of voluntary acceptance is necessary. So suggestion and hypnosis are two examples. According to Huxley, about 20% of people are easily hypnotized, while 20% are very difficult, if not impossible, to hypnotize. The remaining 60%, the majority, can be gradually hypnotized if you work hard enough at it. And similar figures apply to the power of placebo or suggestion, Huxley said, referring to a study on the administration of morphine or a placebo following surgery. The subjects were experiencing similar levels of pain and were able to receive injections for pain relief whenever requested. But half the injections were morphine, half were distilled water, the placebo. And while 20% of the subjects got just as much pain relief from the placebo as from the morphine, 20% got no relief from the placebo, and 60% got some or occasional relief from the placebo. Now, such studies are important because it isn't hard to figure out which segment of the population is extremely vulnerable to suggestion and which is in the intermediate space. As Huxley pointed out, such differences allow for organized society to exist. Because if everyone were unsuggestible, there would be no order to society. At the other end of the spectrum, if everyone were highly suggestible, dictatorship would be inevitable. Having the majority of people in the moderately suggestible category is a happy medium, allowing for the formation and preservation of organized society. At the same time, the fact that there are 20% of people who are extremely vulnerable to suggestion is of enormous political importance. Whoever gets a hold of the 20% can easily overthrow any government or country, Huxley said, using the example of Hitler to show what can be done using the power of suggestion. And he uses an example here that I had not uh, heard of before, but it, it seems to ring true. Hitler understood human weaknesses and exploited them. For instance, knowing the condition is easier when people are tired, Hitler held all of his big speeches at night solely so that people would be tired and therefore less capable of resisting persuasion. So what are the limits of human obedience? Well, in 1962, in a now infamous experiment, Yale University psychologist Stanley Milgram tested the limits of human obedience to authority. The study administrator instructed the study subjects, the teachers, to give electric shocks to a student. Now, the student was actually an actor, but the study subjects were unaware of this and complied with the demands to shock him whenever he gave an incorrect response to a question. Even as the student moaned, begged for the shocks to stop, and ultimately stopped responding, the subjects obeyed the authority figure in the room and issued painful electric shocks. 
Now, the subjects were clearly uncomfortable with the task at times, but they still continued. Showing, out, showing that people may carry out heinous acts when ordered to do so by authorities because they feel less responsible for the behavior in this capacity. The Milgram experiment was later criticized for being unethical, and in the U.S., studies that caused subjects serious distress were later banned. However, similar studies in Europe confirmed the results, suggesting that people willingly and blindly obey authoritarian orders, especially if they feel disconnected from their actions. With societal norms rapidly changing and an increasingly authoritative environment emerging, will humans stop thinking for themselves and proceed fully into a world where privacy no longer exists and citizens turn in their neighbors if they buck the status quo? Huxley's science fiction world in which people learn to love their servitude sounds terrifying to most free-thinking humans. But it's something that's being openly discussed. Top political figures and big tech leaders are using the common refrain that the COVID-19 pandemic has provided an opportunity to reset and build back better. Now, build back better is sort of a tagline for the Great Reset. Though this thing is being played off as a new initiative, it's simply a rebranding of terms for technocracy and the old New World Order. An elite oligarchy is behind this technocratic plan to govern society through technology. Programmed by scientists and technicians and automated through the use of artificial intelligence rather than through democratically elected politicians and government leaders. The current pandemic is being used as justification for the movement, but the agenda has nothing to do with health and everything to do with a long-term plan to monitor and control the world through technical surveillance. Part of the new normal dictum is that you will own nothing and be happy. The unstated implication is that the world's resources will be owned and controlled by the technocratic elite, and you'll have to pay for the temporary use of absolutely everything. Nothing will actually belong to you. All items and resources are to be used by the collective, while actual ownership is restricted to an upper stratum of social class. Through the power of social conditioning, humans could come not only to accept this new form of society, but love it. And Dr. Mercola says the conditioning has already begun. The very purpose of building back better is to do away with what was once normal and replace it with something different. And according to the World Economic Forum, this involves reinventing capitalism. Now, if you don't think this is possible, he says, please consider that the conditioning has already begun. Using fear as a driving force, society not only adapted to, but embraced lockdowns, universal masking and mass vaccination with an experimental injection all without solid data to back up the effectiveness and necessity of these draconian measures. The vaccines were supposed to stop the spread of COVID-19, but fully vaccinated people can still transmit the virus. And censorship of anyone who speaks out against the numerous inconsistencies has become rampant. With the rollout of vaccine passports, unvaccinated people are increasingly excluded from society, facing a loss of privileges and being morally shamed and labeled selfish. Now, there may be one lie to stopping the conditioning foisted upon the public, namely speaking out against what you don't think is right. The alternative is much darker. And you can get a glimpse into such an authoritative future, or an authoritarian, rather, future from George Orwell, who said, In our world, there will be no emotions except fear, rage, triumph, and self-abasement. The sex instinct will be eradicated. We shall abolish the orgasm. There will be no loyalty except loyalty to the party. But always there will be the intoxication of power. Always at every moment there will be the thrill of victory, the sensation of trampling on an enemy who's helpless. 
He said, if you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. The moral to be drawn from this dangerous nightmare situation is a simple one. Don't let it happen. It depends on you. You can probably see around you examples of where the control is being ratcheted down and tightening down around us. The nooses, you know, closing in all around us. But at some level, you have to make a choice whether or not you will go on with it, whether you will go along. And I understand it's, it's going to be a different line in the sand for a lot of people. Some people facing the loss of employment went ahead and, you know, I've got to get the jab because I, I need this job. Other people, for the sake of keeping peace within their school district or whatever, well, you know, we don't like to send our kids to school with masks, but it's such a hassle when they send them home and we have to have all these disciplinary things, so it's just easier to mask the kids and, and, and roll with it. I suspect you probably have a line or two in the sand for yourself. And if you don't, this is probably the best time to, to draw those lines, because if you wait until that moment where pass or play is being forced on you, I can promise you, you'll pretty much do whatever you have to do to keep your skin. It's the people who choose ahead of time. Nope, this is the line. In fact, my line in the sand is now a trench. (laughs) I will not allow this to be taken from me. Just remember, your consent is a magical, magical thing. By saying the word no, you withdraw legitimacy from those who would force these kinds of measures on you. And it can be done peacefully. You just withdraw your support. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network.